0: Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Whisper in the Shadows, the true story of a real-life undercover cop. I'm Michael Bates, and I was a police officer for 15 years in one of Australia's state police forces. I was also an undercover cop for over two years, and all the episodes of this podcast are my true stories of what it's really like to be an undercover cop. Rather, I was Michael Bates. So, full disclosure... Michael is not actually my real name. It was my covert identity I used on most of my operations. Everyone has a notion of what undercover policing is all about. Whether you think they're a narc, a covert operative, a dog or a UC, most people seem to confuse plainclothes police with being undercover. There is a very big difference though. Most plainclothes police are detectives and they don't wear a uniform so they aren't as obtrusive in public. Undercover is completely different, you become immersed in the world with your targets. And When you were a police officer, part of your role is to investigate crimes. This means you try and find evidence to prove the person you have arrested has committed that crime. This evidence can consist of physical, verbal, video and witnesses. When you are an undercover police officer though, you are the evidence. And you are the reason someone gets convicted of the crimes. That is both exciting and dangerous. So let's get on with the next episode. Welcome to Episode 5, The Target, Part 1. In the last two episodes, I gave you the background of who and how I started the journey of each operation with the informant. These people are integral to covert operations, and without them, the Uh, the introductions to targets, i.e. the bad guys, just wouldn't happen. So for me, I think that despite the fact that they obviously got caught doing something wrong, they ultimately atoned for it through helping take bigger fish off the streets. The next couple of episodes will focus on the targets of those operations. As I've talked about previously, over the two and a bit years journey as an undercover police officer, I worked on four major operations as well as some by bus and minor property operations. Each operation was initially focused on a set of key targets who were, in my cases, selling large quantities of heroin and speed. They were alleged to be part of various syndicates who were responsible for major quantities of drugs being sold in different parts of the greater city or regional areas. Without going into too much detail, an informant would identify maybe three or four targets that they believe they can introduce a UC to and explain what they believe the level of these targets are in the chain. The information is vetted against other intel that is known and is either corroborated or otherwise. This thing gets approved or not approved by senior police. If approved, it then becomes an operation and that is where I came in. Again, it is important to remember that informants are doing this for their own self-preservation. It is their own safety that concerns them, not yours. And as a UC, you must always be aware of that and treat every interaction as if you've been compromised. You cannot be too comfortable with either your informants or especially your targets if you've ever watched the tv series blue murder and the scene where michael drew was shot in his own kitchen then you will understand what i'm talking about i'll come back to this real life event later so to say i was always on edge always alert and sometimes a little bit paranoid wouldn't be a vast exaggeration i would never sit with my back to a door or be in a pub or a club without being able to have a view of anyone entering or approaching me. In fact, I still can't now, some 30 years later. I was pretending to be someone else and I did have one occasion when someone who knew the real me and what my real job was approached me when I was out with a target. But again, that's a story for a future episode. During the course you go on prior to joining the squad, we were told stories of UCs in our state police who had been taken to remote locations given a shovel and told to start digging a grave they were asked if they were undercover cop the implication being that if you don't tell us the truth you'll be in that grave you were digging under that pressure he said he he still said no and the whole situation was treated as a joke by the targets afterwards and again he's got and i guess he got his karma on them when that operation closed but it showed just how dangerous the job could be even here in australia I would like to think I would have the balls to hold the line, but I honestly don't know if I would if I would have in that situation. So at this stage of my time working undercover, I had done a cell job and was basically getting things like my COVID identity, car, a pager, and meeting others in the squad. Now it's important to remember that this is the early 90s and mobile phones weren't a thing. They were generally the carry phone in a bag, which is basically the model before the big thick handset, which was affectionately called a brick. So landlines or payphones were the only way of calling people. We did have these things called pages though. In essence, you would get a call, you would call a paging service, give them the pager number you want to message, give them the message and they would type it out and send the message to the pager that corresponds to the number. Generally, if you had a pager, you were either a corporate type, a lawyer, a doctor or a drug dealer. Looking back now, it was quite amazing in how quickly mobile phone technology advanced and became commonplace in a very short maybe two months space of time. I literally went from having a pager to having a flip mobile phone in the space of four months. In May, June, I started my first long-term operation, which was focused on infiltrating a Vietnamese drug syndicate who was selling large amounts of heroin. Several targets were identified and profiled. The majority of whom were Vietnamese. During this operation, I must've completed close to 50 transactions of buying in total, a large amount of heroin that was taken off the streets. It was believed that a sister and brother were in control of the syndicate, but up to that point had been untouchable. There was information of heroin being sold out of a takeaway shop and various other links between two or three families. At some stage, a small-time user had been picked up and had decided it was in their best interest to cooperate with police to get a better outcome in court. Hopefully, no jail time. Now... It's important to create a believable story as to how the informant and I knew each other and why they would be introducing me to their friends, or dealers, or suppliers. You have to remember that these groups are like little ecosystems. Each part has its own use and if you introduce a new element into it, the ecosystem stops working as well as it did until that new part is either accepted or expelled. Or more simply, people who sell drugs are worried about the fact that someone they sell to gets caught and will introduce an undercover cop to them to reduce their sentence, which funnily enough, is what, was, what, is what was happening here in this instance. The story we came up with for this operation was, I'd met Danny in rehab, in a rehab type situation, and was buying from him a little bit. I had moved to the other side of the city and had some really good customers now and wanted to expand my business and get some better product, or rather larger amounts. I didn't want to have to pay him and the person he was getting it from, was to be made clear that I didn't shoot up. I sometimes chased a dragon, which refers to smoking heroin, and I had a thriving business and wasn't into buying $100 packets. Target 1 and 2, Lai and Trong. The first targets I was introduced to were a Vietnamese father and son, Lai and Trong. Of course, it was a typical Danny introduction with him buying a $100 packet for me. On the second buy, which was actually half a gram, I was introduced to Lai, who was middle-aged Vietnamese man, nicely dressed and driving a decent car. Lai was very calm and calculating, not aggressive, didn't come across as a user and wasn't in any way paranoid or freaked out like a lot of users who deal came across. It started with $100 packet but quickly increased to half and then one grand buys. After the first couple of buys, he turned up with another male who was slightly younger but also Vietnamese. Now, of course, I wasn't aware there'd be another person, and there had been an incident a few days previously. So I was on edge. So let me go off track for a little bit here. It is really important to have a safe house and to actually use it. It gives you somewhere to meet your targets if you really need to, but also safety and secrecy is obviously a big part. When I started as a UC, I was engaged at the time. My fiance would sometimes stay at my real house, but I also had a flatmate until my wedding. My neighbor at the time had been a bikie in a former life, and whilst that originally caused friction between us when I first moved in, we sorted it out on the understanding that what he did in his house was his business and vice versa. Now, apparently one day a car had pulled up outside my real house whilst I was away. Inside were two Vietnamese guys, They had been sitting there for a few hours when my neighbor got home from work with his background he always kept a keen eye on what was happening around his home and uh, so he noticed them still there half an hour later now he knew i was a copper but he also suspected what i was actually doing i had longer hair a goatee was rarely around and driving different cars also i had my nose pierced which apparently stood out like the proverbial he decides he would go and see if these two gentlemen were lost or couldn't find the house they were looking for As I've said, he'd been a bikey, and we're talking 70s, 80s bikey. Long hair, long beard, tattoos, etc. And he still looks scary as hell. So, he's dressed in his thongs, his wife beater, and shorts, and carrying his shotgun behind his back. He walks up to the driver's window, flops the shotgun down on the open window ledge, and asks if he can help them, as they must seem lost. He said the look of fear in their eyes at him, and the shotgun levelled at them as the drivers fumbled to start the car, was absolutely priceless. They took off at a million miles an hour, and no one ever came by again. It seems that I must have been followed from one of the early buys with the Vietnamese targets to see who I was. As it was close to my real house, I thought I would just drop in and do whatever it was I was doing. I don't know, maybe feeding the dogs or something. Anyway, I was followed there. Looking back now, I honestly think one of them was actually strong. The best thing that could have happened is my neighbor pulling that stunt. It was never mentioned, but obviously they thought I was the real deal, and I was involved with Bikies. It was, however, rather unnerving. During this time, the ABC released the mini series on Roger Rogerson and the alleged corruption within the New South Wales Police Force called Blue Murder. Now, it follows a lot of the drug t- trade and dirty dealings with the police, but there is also the story of Mick Drury woven into it. Drury was an undercover police officer in the New South Wales Police. He was working on some high-level drug importation into Sydney from Melbourne, I believe. So, with crooked cops on high levels, it became known, that the, it became known to the crims that they had an, unders, uh, an undercover cop in their midst. Let me set the scene a little. Because of the nature of the show, it was on late at night. I was at my real home because I hadn't seen my fiance in a few weeks and she had the night off work. Now, my lounge room window faced the street and was about 10 metres from the road, give or take. There were a few hedges at the front gate and some trees on the footpath but realistically a direct line of sight from the roadway to the lounge room window. The couch was virtually facing the window, the curtains were wide open. It's important to mention that the car turning up had only been a few weeks previous. Here I am sitting watching this TV show. Drury has just been outed to the crims as a UC and someone has decided he's getting too close to knowing certain things. Drury's standing in his kitchen window doing the dishes at night. The light is on, the curtains are see-through. With the light on, it's almost impossible to see outside in the night. There is a figure in the garden. You see the figure raise his hand, which is holding a gun, and then fires several shots into Drury. That moment is etched into my brain. Time stood still. I felt an immediate sense of dread. Fuck, I breathed. It felt like I had been shot myself. I remember looking up and out the lounge room window. I stood up, quickly turned off the light, and then even quicker, closed the curtains. I went to the front door, cracked it, and peered outside. Now, all totally irrational actions, but in that moment, given the fact that someone had been to to my house, I was freaking out. So, back to the bike, and Lai has just turned up with another person in his car. Turns out it was his son, Trong. Lai indicated that if for some reason he couldn't meet me, then Trong would do the delivery for me. Dealing with Lai was very easy, simple and professional. If a drug dealer can be professional, that is. There was little chat, I gave him money and he gave me the drugs. Buys were always done in the car park of a major shopping centre. He would park in exactly the same spot, as would I, and he would walk over to my car, get in the front seat. Many years later, I was actually working in the area, and I would go to the shopping centre for lunch. And like muscle memory, the first time I went, I drove and parked in almost the exact same spot I would when I was buying drugs, which kind of freaked me out a little bit. Obviously, a big part of buying drugs is recording not only the drugs, but the conversation during the buy to prove A, the target is where they are selling you drugs, and B, they intend to sell you more drugs on an ongoing basis. There are many ways to do this, but recording the conversation as it is happening via a tape recording device is the simplest and easiest. It's very hard to refute a tape recording of you saying, "I will sell you a gram of heroin for six hundred dollars. How often do you want to buy? And this heroin is much better quality than a lot on the street. Do you have the money?" For these buys, I decided not to use a tape down my pants. Firstly, as I indicated in my first episode, it is really uncomfortable. Secondly, Trying to turn it on is also hard when you are sitting in a car seat. And thirdly, the quality of the recording can be muffled with everything going on down there. So for the first couple of buys, I did use it this way. However, I came up with the idea of placing the recording device into the interior light cavity of my car. Luckily, the design of the particular car I had meant that there was an excess of space between the twin light globes and the rest of the compartment. There was even a little ledge that was about the same size as the recorder, which meant it sat out of the way nicely. On the first occasion, I thought it to be smart and use the external microphone that came with it. If I was wearing the recorder, I would usually have the microphone attached to the inside of my pants and come up at the top of them near the fly. Given I was skinny back then, there was no gut to impede the recording. So, I've set set this up in the car. To make sure there was enough tape for recording, I had to pull up when I got close to the car park, open the light and turn on the recording device. During the first solo buy, the microphone has come undone from its hiding place, fallen between the two globes. I was able to see the shadow and was sure that see was gonna be able to see it as well. Now, remember the stress I had of hearing the tape change sides? Well, add to that the fact that I could now see the microphone. While Sisby went off without a hitch, the microphone did get burnt and in fact melted. Suffice to say, I didn't use the external microphone again, and it may or may not have been lost. Li was a good source of information around the drug business. Trong was a little more open about the other players, and we got some great intel from him too. He was closer to my age, and there was a bit of I'm better than you in his matter. I don't know if he actually trusted me, but all in all he sold me drugs, which is what I wanted. Now, we have talked about how heroin was split up and sold, but not actually what these packets looked like. I'd never touched heroin before. Sure, as a teenager in high school, I'd smoked some dope, but that was about it. I didn't even smoke cigarettes. I did drink, of course, but that was the extent of my drug take. So, for the first time I bought a $100 packet of heroin, I wasn't completely sure what it was I was looking for. Heroin when sold in a packet is basically a minute amount of paper, powder usually a brownie color, but sometimes white. And it is in a folded like envelope made out of glossy paper, a bit like magazine paper or generally a magazine page. The packet itself is generally about one centimeter by half a centimeter size and relatively thin, just like a a small folded piece of paper basically. So it's easy to hide and easy to quickly transfer between people unnoticed, even in public. As the amounts got higher, packaging changed. Half a gram was in an alfoil packet, same with a gram, but sometimes it was wrapped in the end of a balloon. Then when I started to get to quarter and half ounces, we're talking about wrapped in plastic cling wrap and alfoil. Now a gram of heroin is about the size of a five cent piece depending on if it was a one or two rocks or had been broken up and was, was powder, like a little ball. So for a quarter ounce, which is seven grams, you're looking at some decent sized rocks and packets. The rocks relate to larger pieces of compressed heroin that have been broken off or broken down uh, from a brick and generally have not been diluted diluted too much. If you were buying rocks, then you were generally getting relatively higher purity heroin than if you were buying powder. During one conversation, Lai talked about how important it was to keep his home clean in case he ever got raided. During the conversation, he told me that he kept his heroin in a container either on or near his son's grave and never at his house. This was obviously good to know come operation close time. He also told me about how best to clean the money if I was going to be selling and not using. And as this was my cover story, it was good information. Trong also gloated about how much money he gambled at the casino. I made several buys from Lion Trong, about 18 grams of heroin all up with a total value of about $10,000. The last one I did was for a quarter ounce, which cost me $3,500. Now this was a tricky buy. I had slowly increased by size to grams. I had to come up with a story for Lie, so he wasn't spooked by the sudden increase in amount. You see, such a big jump indicates you're able to sell large quantities and as such are a major player and an actual trafficker of heroin. A large jump out of the blue and the alarm bells start to go off pointing to an undercover police operation. I am fairly sure most users users don't one day turn up and ask to buy a quarter ounce. They are generally doing one gram, selling about half of it to pay for it. But I was able to lay, lay the foundation throughout my meets that I wanted to be like him and have a business where I could make money, on the opposite side of town of course. Now we knew he was close to the source, so it shouldn't have been too big a stretch. If we were right, then opening a market on the opposite side of town would be well received. As I would come to find out later in another operation, that side of town was being supplied by Eastern European syndicates as well as Vietnamese from outside the state. The buy before I had made the ounce request, I talked to Lai about it and said I wanted to ramp up. He was a little hesitant, but was also seeing the money. He said to leave it with him and to give him a call in a few days to see if he could do it. So I called him a few days later and he agreed to do it. Gave me the price of three and a half thousand dollars and off we went. The meet was organised for a day later, and it went off without a hitch, literally. It was easier than buying a foot-long sub from Subway. When you were buying drugs, every note has to be recorded. Now, I had two types of cash. Money for expenses like rent, phone, food, entertainment, paying for performance, etc. And then money for buys. This was separate and I had to get the exact amount from my controller before each buy. This money had to be recorded, i.e. the serial numbers of each note were recorded, as well as the notes photocopied. This was so when the target was arrested, either in a buy bust or in a raid. Any money that was seized would then be reconciled against the money I had given them. If they had notes that matched the notes that I said I had given them for drugs, it strengthened the case against them. The operation eventually closed not long after the quarter ounce buy. Both Lion Trong were arrested and their house was raided. I believe they found a quantity of drugs at the gravesite, as well as money. Both were sentenced to substantial prison sentences for trafficking. In the next episode, I'll introduce some new targets and give some more stories from my first operation. Thank you for listening to Whisper in the Shadows, true stories of a real-life undercover cop. I hope you have enjoyed that episode. In the next episode, we'll explore another exciting operation. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Lastly, you're an ex-COVID operative or undercover police officer, I would like to chat about your experiences or tell your stories on my podcast. And please get in contact by my email, which is on this page.